0: Hello, this is Jeff Treisman. This is Matt Schmidt. And you're listening to Impolitik.
1: Over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent, and if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So let's have trial by combat.
0: Our guest today is Kimberly Cutter, who is a journalist, novelist, writer, and most notably the host of the Control Variable podcast. Uh, She is the former executive editor of Harper's Bazaar and a former West Coast editor for W Magazine. Uh, Kim has uh, written for many publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The Telegraph, New York Magazine. And she's also the critically acclaimed author of The Maid, a novel of Joan of Arc. Kim, welcome to Impolitik.
2: Thanks so much, Jeffrey. Appreciate it.
0: So let's start with the basic question. What is the control variable or how would you describe the podcast to someone unfamiliar with it?
2: Okay. So the control variable is um, my investigation into January 6th and the propaganda surrounding January 6th. But it's kind of a weird um, multifaceted approach in terms of investigation in the sense that I wanted to look at January 6th and propaganda from as many different angles as I could, um, because I feel like so much information that we get these days is really siloed and really specialized. And I kind of wanted to talk to everybody who seemed relevant, who might shed some light on the day itself. So I wanted to interview like historians and neuroscientists and psychologists and, um, advertising executives and artists and, and actual people, actual fundamentalists, people who were there at the Capitol on, on the 6th. And it just felt to me like I might get at a view of the day that would be different from something that I had, um, had seen before or had heard before in the media by sort of taking that multifaceted approach.
0: How I've kind of always described it. And at least to my students uh, and everybody that I've recommended it to is, is it's, it's, it's trying to come at an understanding of the attendees of January 6th who are not the hardcore extremists, those are, quote unquote, on the front line. You can actually see radicalization occur real time on January 6th in a sense that most of those people are not hardcore extremists. They are your average person. And there's so many different factors that might have driven them to walk up the steps of the Capitol. And I feel like that's what the control variable is trying to get at, is that, that large majority of individuals yeah
2: Yeah. i mean that one of the most shocking things probably the most shocking piece of information i discovered while making the show was that only 13 percent of the people who stormed the capitol were extremists 87 percent of the people who stormed the Capitol were like white collar CEOs and architects and doctors and just much more mainstream people who were uh, mobilized that day. And so I was, yeah, I was really interested in trying to understand that. And I, I think I also hope to, in understanding that I might also have a larger sense of how, of, of who the people, the 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump were um, in the 2020 election.
0: I think for a lot of people too, January 6th has kind of shaped how we might view America.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, like you, I didn't, I had no idea that there would be, I didn't think there would be violence erupting on January 6th. And it was incredibly shocking to watch. And it really hit me as an American on a very personal level and made me wonder, really want to understand how, what I had seen and how that had been possible. And I think that the most interesting thing that I came to understand is just, you know, that the core realization is just that Donald Trump's propaganda is so powerful because it is inextricably woven in with um, our country's core mythology, right? So, the stories that we were all told growing up, like mainstream Americans were told about America and what it meant to be an American growing up, are like inextricably woven tightly together with ideas of tribalism and, oh God, like cowboy masculinity and what it means to be free and, um, you know, just to understand that it is our, it are. For a lot of people, it's their core sense of self, their core story about themselves that's under attack, that they feel is under attack because of the way that Trump has manipulated the American story for his own goals. So let's actually kind
0: of dive into that, because that's one of the observations I had from the um, listening to the control variable, is you kind of look at this overlay between uh, injuncture between the rules of marketing and advertising and propaganda with uh, with Trump's um, speeches in a very poetic manner, if I might say. Can you kind of elaborate on, on what you found
2: um, on that? So, um, well, let me just, so the thing with Edward Bernays that is so fascinating is that he, um, as Sigmund Freud's nephew, had come to understand how easily people could be manipulated through their desires. Like if you could access their desires, if you could tell them a story of something that they wanted to hear, that you could really sell them things in a way that had never been done before. And he was able to combine that theory with propaganda techniques that he learned in World War I and sort of meld them into this insanely powerful way of manipulating the American psyche. And um, he used that that method of his to primarily in public relations and in advertising, right? Like he used it to teach Americans how to sell things and it revolutionized the advertising industry. But he also was really proud of his findings and wrote a book, wrote a number of books about propaganda. And in those books, he lays out very, very specifically how to manipulate the, the imagination of the masses and even go so far as to talk about how America's rulers might very well use these techniques, these sales techniques, these persuasion techniques in order to shape people's ideas. Um, and unfortunately, he, he you know, makes this assumption in his book Propaganda that basically like, you know, he, he sort of makes this argument for a rational, benign elite that should be like leading... America, the American country, and says that, um, you know, that if you have this Amer- this benign American elite in public, which is kind of how he saw America's ruling system, um, that, that they would never misuse the tools that he was laying out, right? That these tools would be used for the public good. Um, and that was a, a tragic assumption on his part, because obviously, like, you know, Donald Trump, you can directly see how Donald Trump has used the tools that are laid out in Bernays's book, Propaganda, and manipulated our entire American psyche, or 74 million Americans' psyches, um, to believe things that are simply not true, um, but that feel really good to believe because they make people feel powerful and, and right, and people really like to feel powerful and right.
0: So how... How did you find or how do you see any parallels between his work and President Trump?
2: He took the five key propaganda tenets that Bernays lays out in his book. And if you follow Trump's campaign, um, which we you know use examples of it in the podcast, he used every single one of those techniques to get himself elected and to um, establish himself as as this all powerful leader. So he sees himself to be. When
0: you overlay um some of the sound bites, um it, it gave me like, chills. Yeah. Because you cover, you know, all like the historical kind of techniques that were developed that he developed. And then you overlay it then with Trump and some of the examples of his speeches.
2: Yeah. And Actual it- clips from his speeches, right? <laughs> where you can where he's he's putting those techniques to use and You you just understand that Trump's whole background as a businessman really informed his and his like, because Bernays had such a huge impact on advertising in America and on the American psyche in the business sense, Trump was able to sort of take his sales tools, basically what he understood to be sales tools and use them to manipulate the American public. Um, And when you when you break it down like that, it's very chilling to see how. How exact the parallels are, um, and 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 even more chilling is the fact, you know, finding out that like that the Nazis used Bernays's book. That Bernays' book was found. His book about propaganda was found on Goebbels desk. Um, and so, so Trump sadly wasn't the first one to put these propaganda techniques to use. There's a terrible precedent in our history.
0: Let's kind of change gears a little bit. This next part. I think it might have been more of a controversial, it might be perceived as one of the more controversial segments of the entire uh, podcast, and that's when you cover the psychological or medical studies that lead individuals to either support uh, evangelical beliefs uh, or even authoritarianism.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Can you talk about that a little bit more?
2: Sure. Um One of the things that we wanted to do sort of starting out was, in addition to understanding the role that propaganda played in January 6th, was also just trying to see if there was anything that neuroscience could teach us about how propaganda works in the brain. Um, Because propaganda really comes down, what it really is at at core is persuasion. It isn't actually necessarily inherently bad propaganda. It's just persuasion. And there's a level on which like anytime one person tries to convince a person of something else, that is technically, that is persuasion, is technically propaganda. But so when neuroscientists try to understand how propaganda works in the brain, what they've learned is that basically... um, for people who are inclined towards fundamentalist beliefs, religious fundamentalist beliefs and authoritarian beliefs, they tend to have, um, their belief systems are, tend to be located in a deeper, older part of the brain. And the kind of cognition that they display is something called rigid cognition. It means it's more fixed, it's more um, black and white, it's more inclined towards binary thinking, towards seeing things as good or bad, um, light or dark. and that that way of thinking, you can actually see that the beliefs reside in a different part, an older part of the brain. Whereas with people who have more flexible cognition, so people who are more tolerant of diverse religious beliefs and more flexible in terms of how they see the world and how they understand other people, for those people, their beliefs reside in a totally different part of the brain, which is known as the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, or just, you could just say the prefrontal cortex and that kind of flexible cognition, the scientists kind of to my shock and amazement said basically is, is a more evolved way of thinking. It reflects a brain that has kind of become more muscular in its ability to tolerate different ideas at one time, seemingly opposing ideas at one time. And it is controversial because um, it's it even makes me uncomfortable even now talking about it because it sounds um, it sounds so potentially offensive, right? Like to say that there's this huge portion of the population who, you know, have have um, an older way of thought or a more um, binary or simplistic way of thought is that's a really it makes me very uncomfortable to say that. But then when I think, then when I think about that, I think, well, but so why are we privileging one way of thought over another, right? Like, like it, there's nothing, just because some people's brains work differently, I don't think that we should necessarily say that one is, I don't know, scientists like to say things, say things are more evolved or less evolved. And that's, I think where it gets really complicated because you don't really want to insult people.
0: But then what is the implication of, of your findings then? What does that mean in terms of uh, extremism in the United States?
2: So you're, you're dealing with two different Americas and, um, and two very different ways of thought. In a lot of ways, you can, you can make the argument that what, in, what our increasingly global planet needs is more flexible cognition. Um, is more tolerance of of diverse beliefs and um, less black and white thinking, less nuanced, I mean, more nuanced thinking. Um, On the other hand, it's 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 a really complicated thing, right, because who really gets to tell anybody what they should believe?
0: You know what? One of the the implications I I find is that you know when we think about terrorism and you know right wing terrorism is clearly the a very important threat and growing threat in the United States and it it seems like this notion its of You know, the evolutionary way of thinking, as as some will put it, right, is extremely important because right-wing terrorism is known as reactionary terrorism. And today there's a lot of terrorism or extremism that is reacting to changes in terms of diversity or new ways of thinking or the influx of new peoples to a society. And being cognizant, if you will, of of this, you know, evolutionary way of thinking, I think has important implications, um, not only in terms of counterterrorism policy, but in terms of society um, and how individuals interact with one another.
2: It does. And at the same time, you know, what we're dealing with really is a system that has taught millions and millions and millions of people to think of America as something, one thing, right? Right. That this, this idea of American greatness, this idea of like we are the free and the brave and the bold and the self-reliant and all of these myths about America, you know, were fed to many millions of people for many decades/slash centuries, and they quite understandably have built their identities around that narrative, and um, now are dealing with the fact that a large portion of the country wants to correct that narrative and to create a more inclusive narrative, um, which a lot of people don't know how to deal with because they feel like, I think what's really hard about identity is, is that like, if your identity is threatened, you, you can feel like your life is threatened, right? It's so deep, that belief in who you are, that there's a big part of you that if somebody says, you know, white America is bad and that, you know, you, 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 if you have your core beliefs attacked, you, you feel like you are personally under attack. And I think that's where you get so much extremism is just like you feel like people pe- people think that their lives are in danger. People of great privilege um, think that their lives are in danger. And Donald Trump has, Trump has very consciously and carefully um, manipulated that his narrative to sort of stoke that fear.
0: And I will point out that that is that perspective or your findings is very much consistent with our theories and understanding of the causes of terrorism, particularly right wing or reactionary terrorism. And it's a lot of individuals who are uh, actively uh, trying to protect the, quote unquote, status quo, whatever that might be for them. And that's exactly what you found.
2: Yes, it is. And it's even I'd like to even use a different term than status quo, because honestly, I think that what they see it as is that they are protecting their lives. They don't understand that they're protecting their privilege. I mean, maybe some of them do, but what I feel like is where you get the violence coming in is where people feel like their actual lives and their families and their self is under threat, you know?
0: Absolutely. So I actually have a couple of notes on that. And it seems that one of the common themes almost throughout uh, several of the episodes of the control variable is that warrior masculinity, as I believe you call it, and that's mm-hmm. that's assumed an important identity of of Christian evangelicals and extremists, and um, you know how individuals will support uh, war and torture or just generally oppose the other. Um, can you talk about that that notion and that concept in a little bit more detail?
2: Yeah, I mean it's one of those things that had sort of been brewing in my mind for a long time, and. Um, Kristen Kobes-Dume, who's this brilliant scholar um, who wrote a fantastic book called Jesus and John Wayne, is the the person who really nailed down the, the issue. And she nailed it down because she grew up in an evangelical community and turned out to be super smart and super liberal in terms of like trying to think of, trying to square her Christianity with feminism and with tolerance, right? And finding that the community that raised her was not interested in those notions of Christianity at all. And so this sort of led her into trying to understand how American evangelicalism had developed the way that it had. And very alarmingly, um, with the help of this book called Wild at Heart, which was a huge bestseller back in the early 90s, um, she she understood that this, this myth of masculinity, of American masculinity had been sold to white evangelical young men. And it's kind of a brave heart mentality, this idea that like, in order to be a Christian man, you are gonna have an adventure and you're gonna defend your country and you need a war to fight and beauty to rescue and a cause and a gun. And this book was gigantically popular, this book Wild at Heart that she read, it sold like 4 million copies and it had, Basically, like it, it, it became the kind of galvanizing story that a lot of white Christian men sort of formed formed their notions of what it meant to be what what it means to be a Christian. So you have like this myth, this Christian myth that has been weirdly like. Um, it's, it's been co-opted by the entire evangelical community on some level. And it's been, um, it sort of fed into the evangelical consumer culture. And so even though not all evangelicals are extremist and are inclined towards violence, there's this this idea of an American evangelical man as a warrior and as a brave, bold, free warrior. And so that the tie in there kind of means that you need to fight, that you're born to fight, you're born to defend your nation, your family, your, your, your God. And um, that creates a very, very dangerous mindset that, you know, unfortunately, has been spread throughout, you know, among millions of Americans. and And whether they may not Overtly ascribe to it, whether they don't, of course, all overtly ascribe to it. It's like the it's like the foundation story of what a, a Christian American man is, a Christian evangelical ma- American man is. And so, on some extent, like you really do have millions and millions of people buying into it on some level.
3: Yeah, I, I grew up in that kind of community. Uh, like, I do. Wow. Um, yeah, I grew up in Kansas. Yeah. Um, which isn't to say, I mean, I was actually raised Catholic, um, but I knew a lot of evangelicals. My wife grew up in that uh, movement yeah. very well, and I, I know the book. Um, so my question <laughs> is, how do things like wedge issues, right? Like abortion, right. play into this idea of, of your wildness at heart and this quest that you have to go on? And how are they these wedge issues used to create that quest?
2: Christianity, in my opinion, you know going all the way back to the people who wrote the bible is inherently a patriarchal religion right it presents a masculine god it presents societies in which men are dominant and they're the primary humans who are being addressed and so it's like because christianity rose up in a time and space where um, men were dominant that has helped further the patriarchy that has helped further ideas of of male dominance and ideas that that is what is meant to be and ideas that that is what god wants and so when you have all these people who you know look to the bible and think well look god yeah god says you know like women should not have abortions which actually isn't in the bible but there's scripture that i guess sort of can be twisted that way um it becomes to seem like it comes to seem to people like they're being told about the worst sin possible, right? Like it, like even to them, abortion is murder, straight up, right? Like they, these are people who believe that like Eve was was created from Adam's rib, and that the Garden of Eden was real, and there's a very literal kind of mindset. And um, and when it comes to abortion, they have been told by the larger evangelical community that abortion is murder, and that is where the questioning stops, as far as I can tell.
3: Yeah, I I find that fascinating, right? Um, I watched this happen in Kansas, where young men were were raised with this issue, um, this wedge issue, right, and eventually got pushed over to say, like, my quest, right, my how do I find my manhood? I'm going to go, I'm going to go shoot an abortion provider. Yeah, I'm um, you know, right? George Tiller uh, yep. in Wichita, if you remember, and, and this, you know, kind of stuff. And I think. Um, when i when i left my little burg to go to college i grew up on a farm too like we used to wear baseball caps and 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 work boots and listen to soft rock radio right Seventies, <laughs> eighties, yeah. today yep. um, and when i came back essentially people were in cowboy boots i know right uh stetsons and there was suddenly a country music station right so, this blows my mind and, and and the country music i think was critical right um, you know it's like does Garth Brooks pay in, play into this thesis or or someone else in the country music scene right that that the what can, yeah. talks about drives what you're talking about
2: absolutely it totally does and that's a really I, I think that's a wonderful important point to make there um I was just thinking about it the other day when I was listening to some I was somewhere and someone was playing some loud country music on the radio and I was just thinking how inherently nationalistic and kind of like um it's just it's selling this narrative of this sort of good old american whiteness and sort of like the way things have always been and uh it's almost like a lullaby i think for um a large a large segment so great the community that can't see a, a different way forward
0: Let's actually kind of talk about that notion of nationalism. And you bring up in one of the episodes, uh, The Cult of America, uh, that essentially America is, is the best and white and nothing is wrong, right? Uh, the notion of American exceptionalism. Yeah. And that story of the United States and America is is dying. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing and the implications of January 6th is part of the fact that people are realizing that American exceptionalism is over. The story of the United States is over.
2: Right. And they really don't want it to be. And um, look, there's a level on which it's very understandable in the sense that, like, if we're going to be very, very frank, people traditionally are not big fans of giving up power, right? In general, I think that's a a fair statement to make. And I think that what's required in order to understand the moment that we're in is that um, You kind of have to understand how privileged Americans are just to be Americans. So you kind of, in order to really understand the 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 national shift that's happening, you have to understand that like there are huge portions of this planet that are not privileged the way that white Americans have been, and that but but that while white Americans have been told we're special, we're the best, we're number one, we're meant to rule, we're the superheroes the PR story of America that's been sold to the rest of the planet is like, come on in everybody. This is the, this is the great melting pot. This is everyone is welcome. Everyone can achieve here. Everyone can excel. So you have this, I mean, honestly, there's a level on which it's a giant PR problem, right? You have like the country itself, which has, has been raised on these ideas of American specialness and you have the rest of the world, which has been told like everyone is welcome, come on in. And I mean, in, 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 On a very basic level, I think that's what we're dealing with here is like is that now, you know, where you have the population of of white America being less than 60 percent in America for the first time, these two ideologies are really starting to bang heads against each other. And one you know, the, the traditional white American side of things is like, wait, this is our country. You guys can't come in and take over. And and those people have been taught to think that way by our system. And on the other hand. American PR has said to the rest of the world, come on in. We need you. It's great. Everyone is welcome. And a lot of people then arrive here, whether they're refugees or whether they're illegal immigrants and find out, wait, hold on. This isn't this isn't equal, right? Like all skin colors are not treated fairly. All, all nationalities and religions are not tolerated. And so you have this kind of clash of, of stories happening. This is very, very problematic.
0: So, no, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, you know, listening to your story that you tell and understanding that Americans have always viewed in many respects, America as white and the best and democratic and everybody's free and this notion of American exceptionalism. But what was problematic for me, especially, you know, I did my undergraduate training in history, is mm-hmm. that was never true. And, you know, one of the most notable books that was written on it is Howard Zinn's The People's History of the United States. That It's mm-hmm. always been one of racial and class conflict. And right, I think right. we're starting to recognize that a little bit more um, or being a little bit more acutely aware of that phenomena now
2: we well, right, because thanks to social media, everyone can have a voice, right? And that's very new, right? So, I mean, when you think of what a revolution Twitter is, uh, you know, like many, many, many millions and billions of people have suddenly been given microphones. And so you can't have this elite media narrative being the only narrative available anymore. I mean, there's millions of people saying, hang on, that's not true. That's not my experience, right? So that's a real, there's a real equalizing factor there with social media. And I think it's it's just can't, you can't really overstate the impact of
0: that. I don't want to cover too much of the substance of the control variable. um, And I want our listeners to experience the podcast for themselves because it truly is an experience. Um, But you, you cover a great deal uh, in the control variable. And I'm very curious. Uh, I'm very curious to know what stands out the most to you. What was, what was most memorable um, to you when you, you, you researched and recorded uh, the podcast?
2: just the need for compassion across the board and how little compassion I see in either side of the media. And, um, you know, I, I just, I find that what struck me the most about the fundamentalists that I talked to and the people who were at the Capitol on January 6th was, you know, these are like bewildered people, like the way all of us are bewildered at times. And honestly, like, you know there's they have a real desire for connection and a desire to be seen and respected and deserve to be seen and respected like everyone else. And I think the media doesn't encourage that kind of um, tolerance. and like I don't think the liberal media encourages that kind of tolerance. and um, so I think that that really stuck with me was just like we really have to get serious about compassion if we're gonna if we're gonna move forward on this planet together and and in America together. And um I think I was also, really struck by how fascinating the experts were and how how um, specialized they were and how kind of like the more I thought about it, the more I it seemed really important to kind of like hear voices from all different kinds of communities and all kinds of experts in order to really shed accurate light on what we're dealing with.
3: So what's interesting to me is in my experience, because these issues become, you know, life or death issues, right? Even, it's even Mm -hmm. more than life, right? It's afterlife. Yeah,
2: yeah, totally. Yep.
3: Um, Is that very quickly, it doesn't actually leave any room to see the other side as a human being, even inside families, right? Even, you know, parents and children who should know each other, you know, intimately in that way, and eventually reach this point where they say, no, this is an afterlife issue, right? Or vice versa. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. What, what did you hear, you know, out there doing that, or what do you think about that? What's your own experience?
2: I think that, um, again, I think our media has really stoked that, really, really, and continues to stoke it in this very intense way, right? This idea and sort of identity politics, right? It's, it's, it's not just what you believe; it's like who you are, and um, so when you have these sort of very um, polarized narratives being sold it doesn't leave a lot of room for tolerance right it doesn't it doesn't lead a lot of leave a lot of room for nuance and complexity and kind of it doesn't leave a lot of room for individuals frankly and i think honestly that's related to capitalism i think that it's very hard to think of spaces in american society outside of religious spaces where you can go and you don't have to pay money and you can be part of a community and if you will sign up for what the community believes. People will be kind to you and they will welcome you and they will help you when you're in trouble. And you will get together as a group and you will sing hymns of praise and thanksgiving, right? And obviously I'm just talking about Christianity here, but every religious community does that. And frankly, that's the those are the only spaces really in America where that kind of, Community can exist, and I think you know that's. You can say that that's the break due to the breakdown of kind of like the larger fabric of American society. Um, but it's a real problem, in my opinion, right? Like it's it's like what it, if 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 that's the, if those are the only spaces where commerce isn't involved, um, of course people are going to become very passionate about the, about them because they're the only places where they really are getting to be humans.
0: One thing I have struggled with. Um, since really January 6th and, um, and struggled in my own theorizing and thinking and work and writing is whether or not to be optimistic or pessimistic about the future of the United States. How do you view the future? Are you optimistic or are you pessimistic?
2: I'm optimistic, but I think it's going to get wild. Um, and I think that It's, you know, I think we're going to continue to live in very, very unsettled, wildly shifting times. And I think a lot of what we understand to be what we have thought to be permanent systems, you know, I think a lot of them are probably going to be dismantled in different ways. And, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be really tumultuous. And ultimately, I'm optimistic because I believe in compassion. And I think um, when people get desperate enough, which, given the climate crisis and everything else that we're dealing with, eventually, it's I think it's only going to compassion is going to become very clearly the only way forward. Um, uh, you know, unless somebody throws the nukes and, and blows us all up before that happens. But I believe in compassion. You know, I believe in Reverend Jackie. Right? Like I, I'm, I'm really interested in uh, in a society that um, is is puts more faith and trust in love than it does in fear. And I'm interested in a society that isn't as af- isn't afraid of the idea of love and that doesn't see love as something soft or something less than intelligent. Um, I think we have a lot to learn about what compassion can do for people. I think we have an enormous amount to learn that way. And I think, I think that's, that's what gives me optimism. That's what seems to me the way forward.
0: I want to sincerely thank you uh, and your team, of course, uh, because there was uh, a lot of people I understand behind the control variable and they did excellent work. Um, And thank you for creating such an important podcast, which – I think will hold up uh, the test of time. Um, your research and and work in bringing a really diverse array of experts and personal opinions together paints such a a depressing yet beautiful picture of America. And you know, while it's perhaps distressing, I, I think the underlining message of the Control Variable podcast is is one of hope and one of understanding. And and indeed the 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 podcast itself seeks to understand rather than explain, to to empathize and find common ground, to find compassion, as you said. And I think that's what America needs right now: is hope, empathy, understanding, and and compassion. So, thank you for all your hard work, and uh, I encourage all our listeners here on Impolitik to check out the Control Variable, Kim. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you guys so much. It was a real pleasure. Now time for the debrief with Jeff and Matt.
0: So I I think this the control variable is an extremely important podcast, largely because it deals with those individuals on January 6th who were not on the front lines, who are not hardcore extremists. And as you know, Cam alluded to, you know, most of these individuals, uh, in fact, were not affiliated with any hardcore extremist group. And I think the importance of the control variable is understanding um, their view, how they arrived to the steps of the Capitol that fateful day. And it's something that we really need to understand is not necessarily, of course, the the hardcore extremists, uh, neo-Nazis and um, uh, nationalists and those with you know authoritarian tendencies and uh, proud boys and oath keepers, but the ma- vast majority of
3: Americans who kind of sympathize uh, with that worldview. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, it's a mass movement, uh, and what gives it its power is the mass, and that's really what she's talking about in the control variable, right? And what what makes the individuals that are not at the tip of the spear, right? but at the other end of the spear, um, really operate, right. Really go. And it was really interesting to me to listen to her precisely because I grew up in an environment that became, uh, you know, became that part of the spear, right. Became those people that she's talking about and doing this research on. So it was really interesting to me to, you know, to get those insights about my own upbringing
0: it's in many respects the the podcast it makes you very uncomfortable because you start to understand some of the findings in talking to these experts that uh, she interviews is that you know these notions of authoritarian uh, belief systems and evangelical belief systems and 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 the analogies to Hitler and and, and between Hitler and Trump and those who fanatically follow Trump you know you, you it still exists today. It's just still extremely uh, powerful, that mob mentality. And it results in a loss of ra- rationality and it, it, it affects their
3: identity. Something that we obviously talked to Kim about. Yeah. You know, I started out as a literature major. Don't tell anybody. Um, and when I hear these things, what I think about is uh, are stories, right? Narratives. And this is classic, right? This is run through all of modern literature and it's, it's not uh I think coincidental that it's a story of these groups of small, um, small groups of people living in rural areas that develop these particular kinds of belief systems, uh, of value systems that push the existence of the afterlife um, uh, higher than other folks in you know in urban areas and things like this. Um, And I'm just I'm pushed back every single time to Jared Diamond's work. Um, and, you know, guns, germs, and steel, and this, this question of the rural urban divide, and this idea in political science, that what really, what really matters in one of the, the, the very few sort of rules of the field, is that rural areas, regardless of what language you're speaking, or what time era you're in, once you're past, you know, the creation of civilization, are going to be more conservative than urban areas, and and how amazing it is that there's that rule, and it it's, it's so solid, right, over time. That's what I keep coming back to, and I feel like she's she's dug into the manifestation of that rule in modern America. So the
0: – I'm guessing for you, the rise of Donald Trump to the presidency, um, the events that unfolded um, during his presidency culminating with January 6th, it kind of resonated home for you on a more personal level then.
3: Oh, every day, the people I I talked to and didn't talk to um, on Facebook, the people that I hadn't been talking to that I tried to talk to again. The issue was always, in my case, it was always abortion. It was always Donald Trump and the connection between those two. And then for me, of course, it was this idea of saying, well, why do you believe that Donald Trump of all people represents the values you say you believe in As in, as an evangelical, or in my case, what we sort of call to me, oxymoronically, like evangelical Catholics. Right. Um, And that, and that just said, how could you look at this guy and say that he shares these values, but they would come back and they would say abortion. They would say, this is about the afterlife. And this is about the murder of millions of babies. And no matter what else he's done, if he changes the Supreme court, welcome to today. And that's what they said. Like anything we do to get to that day is justified because it fits in with protecting the life and the afterlife of our tribe and our values.
0: Have you lost uh, uh, any, you know, friends um, uh, or even family members uh, to kind of like this rigid doctrinal belief um, or belief in conspiracy theories, um, especially with family members and friends back home?
3: Absolutely. My godfather, whom I was very close to, um, we don't talk. Anymore, he he. I, I wrote some things on Facebook. I had published some things in, in off eds for work, and he eventually wrote me a nice note explaining that he was defriending me because he couldn't support my value system.
0: That's crazy. Yeah, I I think that's why um, Kim and of course her team and you know I, I don't think we gave enough credit all the people that were involved in the control variable, but um, you know they they did such an, a phenomenal job you know, really uncovering this this story of America today. And we, we talked about, you know, the, the story of America and, and American exceptionalism, but this is another story, uh, another dimension of contemporary America that needs to be told.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think I wanted to push her more on the economic side of this. I think she's got a real thesis there about capitalism and the patriarchy and, you know, inequality and religion. Um, and, and basically it's, it's old school Marxism. I can tell you what it is already, right? Most likely, right. With all due respect to her, but it's a Marxist critique. And we haven't been afraid, we haven't been uh, courageous enough to call it what it is for many years to, to offer a critique of, of Western capitalism in the way that Marx would. And, and I mean this in a way that Marx, most people probably listening, don't, don't like remember that Marx, Marx respected capitalism immensely. He thought that that you know high capitalism was the stage right before communism happened and there was this this deep critique um, that went much further than you know economics out there and i think that people like her and other people are continually um, discovering or rediscovering a marxist critique of our own society um, I- including with these questions that are sort of this like sort of to borrow a physics term right the theory of everything right the way in which the way in which the sociology of cults and the, the sociology of of you know mass social movements like like the Republican Party today and the sociology of capitalism all sort of come together and are tied in by you know one of the things is patriarchy, right? And and then this idea of a caste system, right? And 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 slavery and the ripple effect of all of that, and I think. Um, she's an important part of that. And this digging this out in the way that she's doing is a critically important part in of uh, building that, you know, new story of America, as she put it.
0: So obviously we need to stress to our listeners that Kim is by no means a communist or a Marxist, and we should make that abundantly clear. But I think her critique is very reminiscent of the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, who pushed back during recent congressional testimony when he was asked about critical race theory. And he said he wanted to better understand what drives white rage. And the general was also quite adamant in saying that he's read Lenin, he's read Karl Marx, but he was also clear that his, his academic and his intellectual curiosity, that does not make him a communist. And that is important to understand, which I think is exactly what Kim was saying in our interview, and again, I think that's the essence of the control variable, trying to understand. In fact, let's listen to General Milley's comments during that testimony.
1: On the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, But I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. uh, And it is important that we train and we understand. uh, And I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. So what is it that causes thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America. What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that, because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines and guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong, I've I've read Karl Marx, I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong? with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend. And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers, of being quote woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, anti-bellum laws prior to the Civil War that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a Civil War and Emancipation Proclamation to change it and we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964, it took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know, and I respect your service, and you and I are both Green Berets, but I want to know, and it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military, and I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that.
2: Thank you, General.
0: So. I think it's critical for all of us to be open-minded and brave to challenge conventional wisdom and really rethink institutions that have existed for long periods of time that often benefit one group over another that privilege one group over another and i think it's important for us to consider how we can maybe
3: make society better absolutely i i tell my students all the time i say jesus christ was a communist Right. If you really read the Bible, you really see what he's doing, he's saying there's no there's no private property, right? Jesus Christ was compassionate, right? He's everything that Kim is talking about. And my critique on Marx is, is he was right about everything except capitalism, meaning he thought that capitalism would fold right in the late 19th century because of you know the sins of high industrialism. Um, and the question is, is if capitalism is sort of endlessly innovative so that it, now you have, you know, uh, you know, remote working and you only come into the office two days a week and, you know, we have offices of, of diversity and inclusion in every business and, and if it's able to, in, a, in effect, like take criticism and reinvent itself um, over time so that, that Marx is correct about his criticism, of, of, his criticism of, of economics and of capitalism all the way up until the present day, but the present day just keeps, right, staying one step ahead, right? Renovating itself one, one more step uh, further into the future, but the critique is still valid, if that makes sense.
0: Absolutely. Well, I want to thank Kim for coming on to our podcast, and I want to encourage all our listeners to check out the control variable. We have a link to the control variable in our show notes for this episode, and I'm delighted to announce that the control variable will soon be moving to a weekly format with a much broader focus, so please be sure to give them a follow. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Politic. Please be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes. And please be sure to give us a rating as well. It really helps us out. Thank you very much, everybody. And until next time, thank you for listening.